Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Tulusma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Tulusma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on Electricast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. Electricast. This is E2, Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. On the show today is Shahar Arez. He's the co-founder and CEO of Stoke, an on-demand talent platform empowering companies to adopt and scale a hybrid workforce model. In 2021, Stoke was acquired by Fiverr for $110 million just 15 months after coming out of stealth mode. In this one, Shahar and I dive into the early days of Stoke. We talk about trends related to freelance and remote work, the sale to Fiverr, of course, the differences between startup culture in Israel and Silicon Valley, and much, much more. So with that intro out of the way, let's get to the show. Here is Shahar Arez. As I was perusing your LinkedIn post, what I found interesting is, is you posted something and I'll quote, if you don't like working with freelancers, you haven't been hiring them in the right way. In a way, I sort of thought like this is the problem statement that Stoke was tackling in the market, wasn't it? Yeah. The main thing that we saw was you know, the biggest barrier. Some people ask you when you you, you fund companies and you, you raise funds, they're asking, so who are your biggest competitor? And it's like our biggest competition is mindset and spreadsheets. Like most organizations are not well equipped thinking through how do I tackle my biggest problem with C, which is execution. How do I execute faster? How do I get more done? How do I become more lean, more effective? And the answer is staring us in the face. And that's, that's out of flexible work for freelancers. On the flip side, a lot of people still are working under the notion of, well, you know, freelancers are the people that couldn't get a steady job. How do I know the freelancers are dedicated? There's a lot of misconceptions about contracting and freelancing that they were kind of true 20 years ago, right? When I made my first steps into the business, I don't know how old are you're Adam, but when I made myself into the business, you know, 20, 22 years ago, it's like, Everybody were looking for a full-time job in tech companies. Nobody generally didn't want to be a freelancer. We're in a completely different world today. The top talent doesn't want to be full-time employee. They want to be freelancers. They want to have the flexibility, uh, the velocity in which things are changing. And so to your point, yeah, I think that that's a significant part of, of the problem statement is that a lot of companies are not thinking through what could we do had we solved our inability to properly work with freelancers. And I mean, this seems like such an obvious value proposition now coming out of two years of the pandemic. But when you got started, when the business was founded in 2019, it wasn't so obvious, correct? You'd be surprised. It's not, well, it's a lot more understandable today because of COVID. When we found it again, it became very apparent to me. It's one of those things that you look at the hard facts, again, go back to 2018, 2019, pre-COVID, and you kind of see that the trend, right? The number of freelancers around the world growing exponentially for the past 20 years. It's not a two-year journey. It's 20 years. You can see the graph going up and to the right by the IRS, the Department of Labor. It's like the numbers are there. 
you're seeing what's happening with millennials and Gen Zs. They want a different social construct. They, they don't want to be full-time employees long-term. The velocity in which companies need different skills is constantly changing. So the data was staring us in the face. Something is significantly changing in how work is going to get done. It was there. That's what got me to start Stoke. But you're right. When we started pitching Stoke, uh, we had conversations with VCs that told us, like, it's never going to happen. Remote work is not going to happen. Freelancers are not going to happen. It's like, you guys are smoking. We don't believe in the, in the theory. Obviously, now everyone's like, well, hey, remote work is happening and is possible. No one's going back. Freelancing, I think it's clear. It's not that clear cut. Obviously, remote work was forced down our throats. So everyone understand that's a thing. But I think... You know, for me as a founder, I've done that previously in other companies that I worked at, feel more as an entrepreneur rather than an entrepreneur. When you kind of have, you know, the world is heading down a path, you're saying, it's like saying, well, you know, is private space exploration going to be a thing? We'll probably know that for five years now, that's going to be a thing. Are you ready to make a bet? Are you ready to invest? Are you ready to go for the long-term journey? Maybe not. But now it's like everyone understands the thing. Autonomous cars. I remember 2017, 2018, I was talking to a few of my VC friends in, in Greylock and Sequoia and, and in recent Horowitz. And I was like, mm, it's going to happen. Not sure when, but it's happening. Okay, so you make a stance, you make a decision. It's like, okay, I'm going to build something. They all told me, it's like the jury's still out. Who's going to be the winning company or the winning technology, which is then about execution. But there's no doubt we're heading down this path. And I have no doubt we're heading down a path where 30 to 40% of your workforce will be freelancers. Do you think that that's, um, you know, you mentioned you're getting feedback from Sequoia and Andreessen early. Is that an intentional strategy as an entrepreneur, do you think, to find out if you have early validation before you go ahead and pitch for a seed or a Series A? I don't know if it's a strategy. I think part of it, uh, selfishly for me, right, making a decision to leave you know, a well-paid corporate job to kind of go and say, well, I'm going to start a company and you have access to a network of, you know, French partners uh, that are that are in VCs to get some validation. Is this fundable? For me, it was a necessity. And so I did that. Do I recommend it to everyone? If you have the ability to go, and by the way, when, when young founders come to me for advice, I tell them, go talk to VCs. Like, well, we're not ready to get funded. It's like, don't ask them for money. It's like, hey, I need 30 minutes of your time to get your opinion about something I'm trying to do, you're always going to gain something. It might be, you know, some some sort of advice or an intro to someone who might give you advice. So let's rewind back to 2019 when you start this thing. So you leave your corporate job. Do you get started immediately on the product builds? Like what did the first inning of this thing look like? So, so I said 2018 is a transition year. I did luxury, right? And it's, I don't think any um, I would have been able to get to the same decision structure that I made. I think some stars aligned that way for me. But I made a decision that I wanted to do something else by 2019. And I was like, either start a company or join a different company. I wasn't 100% certain yet what I'm about to do. Mid-2018, I left my job and made a decision I'm going to take six months off because I worked my ass off for the last three and a half years at this job. As I mentioned, traveling uh, San Francisco, Tel Aviv, at least once a month. And so I was constantly tired for like three years, jet lag. And so I said, you know, before I make any decision, I need to regain some strength. And, you know, start exploring, reading, diving into what it, what would be interesting. And my DNA was always about doing something that, that I believe can be a significant change in technology or work environment rather than 
taking something that exists and just making it a little better. And I spent that entire period interviewing. I spoke to about 150 different CEOs, CFOs, and heads of HR during the second half of 2019 in Tel Aviv, in California. I'm mostly Tel Aviv, uh, California, New York. What are you seeing? What's happening? What's your concern? Is this an issue? By the way, a lot of them told us managing freelancers wasn't an issue. And what was mind-boggling was that most of them underestimated the number of freelancers they had by uh, up to three to five X. No one knew how many freelancers they had in the company, which kind of said, okay, something's wrong here. If no one in the company knows this, there's something here that needs fixing. I think the core hard metrics was around, can you get people to adopt? Can you get users to change how they're doing? Can you, and these are not the type of things that you're going to get any impact until you have an MVP and you start selling. And so there was no point. My epiphany, if you will, uh, during a previous round that I had was, if you come up with a product this early, most of what people will see is the gaps. It's like, oh, but what happened if the user wants to do this? And what I, it's like, I of course, I haven't solved all the use cases. I've been bootstrapping. And so I made a decision. It's like, I'm not even going to try to convince them that I can build a product. They'll have to trust me. And I don't know if it was luck or I was right, but somehow we got funded. So you raised pre-revenue? You raised your seed pre-revenue? I raised my seed with uh, 12 slides. Mm. I mean... That's a victory in and of itself. Most founders don't have that luxury. They need to show early traction. They need to show, you know, incremental revenue. So congratulations. I mean, it's a huge accomplishment. And beyond that, I mean, things go well, right? You go on from your seed, the product gets built. You then raise a series A for 15 and a half million, I believe, led by Battery Ventures. So talk to me about the trajectory once this platform is in market. So first of all, I'll take a step back and, and you're saying about most funders don't have this luxury. A, you're probably right. I will say that the one thing I had walking into this fundraising was the conviction. What I was selling, if you will, was the fact that if you subscribe to a world that's heading down the path that we're talking about, more freelancers, more flexible workforce, then... Do you subscribe to the fact that companies will need a platform to manage it? If you subscribe to the fact that freelancers are there, platforms required, and there's a gap right now, and no one owns that market, now do you believe I'm the one that can build it? So there's like a three phase there. And so if you don't subscribe to all of these three, then it doesn't matter what I'm going to prove to you. So we closed our seed round, I think it was April, May of 2019. We started building out the team. Our first employee, I think, signed May 1st, I think, and started building out the product. We were ready for design partners, uh, initial customers, not customers, but users, more like it, around the November timeframe, so about six months of building out the first version of the platform. Made a decision in June of that year, 2020, that there was no point in sitting on, you know, on the money. We had to go and execute, show traction, because if we want to get another funding round, it can't be on the fact that we just lasted long. And uh, we started selling July of 2020. Again, it was when the market, all of a sudden people, you know, we started seeing this, that the pandemic didn't have a negative effect, but actually a positive effect on, on the market. And so people were, were more open. By the end of the year, we had, I think, 12 or 15 paying customer of that time and made the decision that in Q1, I'm going to start having similar conversations with the VCs, as I mentioned earlier, 
is this interesting? Um, and you know, one thing led to the other, and we we did our A round at the end of that quarter. And of course, COVID sort of accelerates the shift to agile work as companies understand the value proposition that you're bringing to market. Do you think in the absence of COVID, you would have had the traction that you had? I, I think it did have an impact on companies understanding of where the world is heading. We had zero brand or market presence. And so we still had to work very hard to get the meetings, to explain what we're doing, what why what we're doing is different than what others are doing. It wasn't like all of a sudden we had inbound demand. It's all just, you know, just give us this platform. It wasn't that way. We still had to convince. I think it worked tremendously well with VCs that understood, okay, what we're seeing now isn't going to stop. This is the future. Remote work is going to stay. Freelance is going to stay. We need to make a bet on a winning horse in this next generation workforce. Uh, So I think it helped us tremendously there. I think with companies, the change is still in motion. If you talk to a lot of CEOs, CFOs, I think some of them are still struggling today, two years after. Well, it's more than two years now. There's this trend now, this chatter over the, I don't know what you're saying, Adam, but over the last two weeks, two, three weeks that I'm hearing in the US and now in Tel Aviv of CEOs struggling with the fact that remote work is here to stay and are trying to find ways to get people back into the office. And so I think that everyone was aligned with the trend when COVID was there. Oh, we allow remote work, but now... Looking in hindsight, they understand that it needs to completely change their managerial style and they're having a hard time with it. And so I think we're still just at the cusp of this change. It hasn't settled yet. I want to dive deeper into the company side in a moment, but back to uh, the perspective of venture partners and how they were looking at the market. So you said they they obviously understood the trajectory of freelance and where things were headed. You know, you had these players already, you know, Upwork, Fiverr, these big names. We'll, we'll get to the Fiverr acquisition later. But how were these VCs looking at the market? Like, how did they see it? And, and where did Stoke fit into the equation? You know, when we started, there were about 300 marketplaces, right? As you mentioned, Fiverr and Upwork and Freelancer.com and TopTel and, and whatnot. By the way, now there's over a thousand. So that's like, I think COVID has, has pushed everyone to that angle. The way we explained it, a good friend of mine is uh, the founder and CEO of uh, TripActions, uh, the corporate travel platform. And we we're talking when he started TripAction about the structure and the business model and everything. We've been working together for almost 20 years. And and I think a lot of the way that he positioned trip actions back then had similarities to how I spoke about about Stoke, the way I still speak speak about Stoke. So if you think about I'll talk about trip actions for a moment and then we'll hop into what we're doing. If you think about trip actions, go back a decade, there's gazillion online travel applications like Expedia and Booking and Kayak and Priceline and Skyscanners. Like there's there's a plethora of them, right? Making billions and billions of dollars. None of them have been able to break through corporate travel. Expedia tried that with Agencia, failed miserably. So if you're booking your personal trip, Adam, you're probably using one of those platforms. If you need a corporate trip, none of them will fit your needs because they don't have everything that corporate's requiring for a travel application, budget management and, you know, uh, compliance and insurance and regulations and putting up corporate policies, all of those elements that are required. It's a lot more than of an enterprise platform than just swiping your credit card and buying a ticket to Hawaii. You need a process. By the way, at the end of the day, Adam, the corporate traveler and Adam, the personal traveler might board the same plane. 
but the entire experience was completely different. And it's the same analogy that I took into this freelance economy space. If Adam wants, you know, someone to do his kid's birthday video, swipe your credit card, use Upwork or Fiverr, and you'll get something for, you know, you know, whatever price you want to pay for it. If you want to book it through your company, then you need, you know, expense reports, someone to approve your budget, someone needs to sign on NDA and IP ownership, you need to make sure they don't uh, access any data. And so the corporate angle of managing freelancers was completely lacking. And obviously, Trip Actions back then grew from nothing to a $5 billion company within four years. We said the same story about, hey, the same thing's going to happen with freelancers. That what's got them to realize, you know, we're taking something that grew up or was maturing in the uh, uh, consumer world, it's making its way into corporate, and there's a reason why things need to change. Yeah, that makes total sense. And if you look at the problem set here, I mean, having to manage contractors and get them to adhere to the correct policies, the workforce culture, having to onboard them, manage their payments, etc. I mean, this effectively is what Stoke is solving. But yet, early days when you were gathering that feedback, right? Going back to what you were saying, you were talking with heads of HR. It wasn't so obvious to them that they had this issue, yet they did have freelancers on board. They did have plenty of freelancers doing work for the company. Uh, by the way, I think it still is the case in a lot of places. Uh, there's a lot of ignorance in this space because a lot of this isn't the main thing. This isn't anyone's main role within any company. So if you think about HR, what is HR focused on, generally speaking? Three things. Recruiting, welfare, compliance for employees. These are the three things generally HR focuses on. If you ask any CEO, CFO, or head of HR how many employees work for the company, they know it in their sleep. You will not find a single person in the company that knows how many contractors and freelancers work there. I tried. No one knows. It's no one's responsibility. And so everyone's looking at their own very narrow view. And we ran into companies, again, not knowing whether, you know, their freelancers signed up, you know, contracts, NDAs, IP ownership, data protection, whether they own company equipment, you know, are you in risk of workforce misclassification, which is a huge thing now in the U.S., specifically California, New York, Massachusetts. Are you paying uh, cross-border? Are you collecting all tax forms? Are you submitting all 1099s? So there's an entire set of assets. You know, I interviewed companies before they did a funding round, uh, due diligence before a funding round, audit before uh, IPO. It's almost a repeated process where they're saying, we realized that some of our freelancers are still having access to our systems and our building back then. It was before uh, everyone did remote work, six to nine months after they're done with a project because there's no offboarding for freelancers. No one knows that they're not working anymore. There is no, when employee's done, he has to sign some paperwork. When a freelancer's done, who's responsible to let them go? Is it the manager? The manager's doing something else. HR doesn't deal with freelancers. Legal, they're too big. It's like no one's responsible for that thing. And we saw again and again, and we ran into companies that were penalized with millions of dollars of penalty for misclassification freelancers. Uh, companies, there was a case, a small company got acquired by Apple, if I remember correctly, that, you know, when they, during the acquisition process, they did due diligence and, and Apple told them, it's like, we want to go through all the IP ownership to make sure you guys own all the IP. And they didn't have all IP agreements because they didn't make sure all freelancers signed them. And so I said, it's like, we either put money into escrow or you guys need to make sure all IP agreements are signed. So they went to search for all the freelancers that worked for them. One of them was a graphic designer. 
And the graphic designer uh, was like, what made you come back now? It's been two years since I did this whatever video for you. And they told us like, well, we're, we're getting acquired by Apple and we need to sign up. I go, oh, how interesting. I'll sign it, $250,000 and I'll sign IP over. And it's like, so these little things that you're not thinking through when you're managing the process can be significantly painful, uh, not to mention just the day-to-day headache of onboarding freelancers. Obviously, Fiverr understands this. They come around and acquire you for 90 plus million. Um, it's it's exceptional and congratulations on that deal. Two-part question. One, how did this deal come together? And two, what was it that they saw? I mean, it, to, to me, the obvious synergy here is what you were talking about, which is that this idea that corporate is wrestling with these issues that they can't quite wrap their head around. Is that what was obvious to them? I think Fiverr has an initiative that existed before we got acquired and that's going up market. Fiverr services, if you think about it, when they where they started off with these $5 gigs and now you know selling much broader services, understand that this world of online services or services a product can serve a lot more than your basic day-to-day consumer. It's like, how do you make this a repeatable process and how do you sell up market? But I think for us, it was a bit different. Fiverr is an Israeli company. We're, we're based in Israel as well. And when I started Stoke, obviously, I was ignorant in a lot of different elements of what it means to manage freelancers, dealing with contracts, paying international freelancers. Like There's a lot of operational decisions and dilemmas that we had to deal with. And someone introduced me to uh, Fiverr CFO even before I got started. And we met a few times to you know brainstorm and get his feedback. And we stayed in touch throughout all these years. And, you know, every one or two quarters, we used to meet. It's like, what's going on? What are you seeing in the market? Who's your competition? We built a healthy relationship over these three years where there was enough uh, trust and understanding of what we're doing, what are the challenges, well, what's the potential as well. And when I started doing the A round, uh, Fiverr actually expressed interest in actually participating in the round and investing in us. Back then... You know, we didn't end up having enough space for them because we were uh, were tight on, on room there. But it did lead to a series of more in-depth conversation, not just with the CFO, but with Micha, the CEO, and other people in the company where we dug deeper in what we're doing and what customers are saying about us and why it's interesting. And they dug into the business and they found it interesting enough to keep digging. And so the, the conversation kind of uh, switched gears May or June of 2021. You know, instead of talking once every quarter or every other quarter, we used to talk every two, three weeks. In August of that year, um, Ofer, the CFO, called me and said, look, we dug enough into this to think there's something compelling enough that completes our solution. As we're looking going up market, your guys are coming top down market. How do we connect everything that we have from a supply standpoint, everything you're building from a minute? It's like, how, how do we build this thing together? And when people ask me when we started Stoke, do you think Fiverr or Upwork are going to buy you? I was like, I don't think so. I think we're going after a completely different market. Uh, more like it, I thought, you know, someone like a NetSuite or an SAP will be the ones to buy us. But somehow when it did happen eventually, it was very natural. I felt very natural with, with the Fiverr team after the conversation. It wasn't an out of the blue acquisition proposition. It's like, well, I need to learn these teams. This thing going to happen. It was very natural. No, it sounds it. Uh, to me, there's obvious synergies. You brought something up that I wanted to ask you about, which is you know this this background being in Tel Aviv and Fiverr being incubated in Tel Aviv. I think you know obvious to some who are listening, but maybe not so obvious to others that Israel has an incredible tech hub, and in a way, it, it sort of lends itself to 
tech and to startup culture. Yet, you know, it doesn't have the same brand, let's say, as Silicon Valley does or New York or, or what have you. What is it about Israel or, or Tel Aviv specifically that lends itself to startup culture or, or tech culture? You know, I think there's several things that work, I don't know, well, but work well for uh, for finding a company in Tel Aviv. A, we're a small country that's, um, I'd say, almost constantly threatened. And so we always have to improvise and startup companies just in their nature are threatened uh, or exist, existential threat, if you will. And so just living under this understanding that nothing's safe, there's no reason to climb a corporate ladder, you got to make your own way. Second, there's a lot of young talent concentrated in the same location. Everyone in Israel goes through military service and the technology units in the military are probably one of the finest that you can find. So you have people that are leaving the military in 21, 22 with probably supreme technology on the ground experience, not you know, college degrees, but actually spend the last four years writing code, probably some of the most complex systems out there. And I think these two are kind of what what's driving this. I think the third one is it's just a there's a culture, there's a very opinionated culture in Israel. Everyone expresses their opinion. No one confines with corporate uh, bureaucracy or uh, wanting to be just a small part of a large organization. Everybody wants to be able to you know just run fast, break things. Um, it's part of the dynamics that uh, we've grown under here. I think there's a lot more maturity in the last few years that I didn't expect to see. When I left Tel Aviv in 20, 2008, moved to California, um, and back then, Israel was all engineering. It's like you, there were hardly any business function in Israel. When I moved back in 2013, I was like, what am I going to do here? Everyone's just engineers, not just, but I'm not an engineer anymore. I can't write a single piece of code. But there's a, there's been an evolution, I think, with SaaS, remote selling, uh, the ability to start up companies with remote headquarters that has made significant impact on the Israeli ecosystem. There is a lot of very large companies that are managed from Israel today, billions and billions in valuation. There's a lot more money flowing into Israel that kind of led, it's not just a tech hub anymore. There's real corporates that are build, being built here. You know, I jotted something down. You mentioned that this sort of this culture of moving fast and breaking things. And I'm curious, do you feel like that is the way that Silicon Valley startup founders think of things? Like when Israelis come over to California and try and incubate companies in the US and try and raise funding, are they bumping up against a different belief system, the same belief system? What is it like? I think there's a lot of similarities between Silicon Valley and Tel Aviv or Israel, generally speaking. A, by the way, I think both Silicon Valley and Tel Aviv are multinational. Israel is built by immigrants, whether first or second generations. Uh, the company, the, the country didn't exist uh, 80 years ago. Silicon Valley has a lot of different DNA poured into it. Uh, it's, it's very multicultural. I think Silicon Valley is definitely a lot similar in the mentality of breaking things. I think one thing that used to be very different, but I think is kind of turning to be more similar over time, there, by the way, there's a great, for anybody who's listening and, and wants to read more about what Israeli culture is like, there's a great question that was posted on Quera probably five, six plus years ago, where someone's asking, what's the difference between working with Israelis and working with Americans? And with Americans, generally, it's a very, it's a very fine process. Everyone's thinking about how do I build something to scale? Right from day one, it's like how do I build something to scale? And Israelis generally never we never thought about scale because it's like it was a small country, we never thought about the possibilities. So as I build something fast, if it works, 
make it better, build something new. It's like constantly iterating because you, you don't even know if you're going to need that scale phase. And I think over the years, there's this mentality has made its way into Silicon Valley as well. So Reid Hoffman's book was uh, or Built to Scale. Uh, he has a book called Built to Scale. And he's constantly repeating the phrase there. If you want to build something that scales, you got to do things that don't scale. See if it works. Make it very inefficient. It's fine. See if it works. Improvise, improvise, improvise. If there's enough traction, then find a way to make it scale. And I guess this is, we didn't never thought that way. In Israel, we were forced to think that way. It's like, just build something, see if it works. If it breaks, it breaks, fix it. And then fix it again and fix it again until you get to a point where there's enough duct tape there to turn it into a business. Now, it's it's very cool. You know, Doke's core values are interesting. And I can't help but think about what you're saying in the context of what they are. Uh, and I'll just read a few of them. So integrity and candor, camaraderie, bold yet pragmatic, being passionate, being trustworthy, being execution focused. And, and then the last one, we are human. Do you feel like these are core values of Tel Aviv, core values of Israelis? Or are they really specific to Stoke? Well, some of them, I think, are generally core values that would resemble Tel Aviv. Some of those come from my personal background. I think generally the, the practice of going through core values, and by the way, we did start our first meetings in the company talking about what would we like the core values to be for the company. You know, I'd love to say that we practice well all of them. We practice some better than others. So I think some of those come from my personal experience. Candor is a great example. Israelis are candor in nature. We say what we think. We argue. We raise our voices. Disagree. We debate. We fight. You know, if you walk into the room, you think you're going to walk into a knife fight. And when the discussion is over, we hug and go to grab beer together because uh, we know it's never personal. We, but we're very passionate about, you know, what we think is right. And working with Americans is an example. When I first started, there's a lot more politically correctness in how you handle a debate, right? There's like, there's some things you're, you're, you're not supposed to say. And remember when I did business with Google at Kenshin, my last position, uh, we had a meeting at the Googleplex and the first two hours, uh, they were pitched around how do we handle one of the people in the room brought up this book called Radical Candor. It's like, how do we practice this? Please, let's have an open discussion. Let's not hide things. So for two hours, we're talking about this. I was like, dude, we're Israelis. It's like, we don't need a book or a guy. Don't worry. You're going to hear our opinion even if you don't want to hear it. How do you practice this third one within the company? So bold yet pragmatic. You know, as, as a product guy, in, in my experience, I always say there's like two core types of product people. One type of product managers are the ones that are just, hey, there's a lot of product requests coming in from the customers and sales that we got to prioritize for engineering. That's the basic, the day-to-day. -day. The other type of the product people are the ones that are saying, hey, in five years, we're going to be this or that. Both type of product people are not doing a good enough job. The most challenging thing is say, we're going to be in three years, but then what are we doing on a day-to-day -to, -day to make sure that we're heading in that direction? And so be very bold in saying where you're aiming towards, but then tie it down to what are we doing today to get there? Just saying, hey, let's shoot for the stars and stop everything. Just focus on landing on Mars. We're not going to we're not gonna fly to the moon anymore. We're not going to go to space anymore. Only going to Mars. Probably not get you where you need to go. And so finding that balance of saying we're going to be very bold, very bullish, but we're also going to tie it and ground it to what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Shahar, I want to read something that you posted 
about a week ago. You said older generations have criticized the Great Resignation movement, calling it privileged and lazy. What is it that you're seeing in the market? Where does the statement come from and where are things headed? So the Great Resignation, that's almost a year old now, I think uh, almost since we started seeing it. I think it was last April where we started seeing about 4 million Americans quit their jobs in a single month. And you start seeing this movement where people are saying that we're we're not going to abide with these corporate regulations of showing up to the office five times a week or uh, working for uh, for minimum wage and so forth. It's like there, there's got to be some some balance created there. What we're seeing on the other end was that a lot of the still today, most of the boards and and management teams are still of, I'd say, my generation, Gen X and above, not millennials, are kind of saying, you know, this generation is just lazy, just don't want to work hard. Uh, like anything else, the truth is somewhere in the middle, right? I think that the fact that, you know, when I started my career, I worked 15 hours a day doesn't mean that that was the right thing to do. I think that there's a lot more opportunity today. There's a lot more flexibility today. And I think that, uh, by the way, I think the pendulum, my personal opinion, pendulum is swung to more of the employee side these days rather than the corporates. But I think that it's somewhere in the middle where people need to get the flexibility they want, the growth that they want, to be able to practice the, uh, the skills that they, they, they chase throughout their career uh, rather than, uh, than focusing on a single employer paying them uh, minimum wage. I think companies are right now treating this movement with a Band-Aid. Oh, we don't want people to leave. We're going to give them some raise. We're going to throw another party. But it's like something fundamental has changed. Something fundamental. People have different priorities. People want different flexibility. And companies will need to come around to understand that not everybody wants to work five days a week. Not everybody wants to work nine to five. And you're either going to say, well, I only want to hire the people that I want to work the way I want them to work and give up on 30, 40% of the available talent. Are you going to have to change how work gets done in your company to adapt to this workforce? You know, smaller startups and scale-ups, I think, understand this notion much better than large corporations, Fortune 500s. But do you feel like there are a couple of examples of Fortune 500s that understand this shift and have adapted well? Honestly, I can't think of one. doesn't mean they're, they're not out there. I can't think of one. And I'll have to give them credit. It's super difficult. When we started the company again, pre-COVID, we said, you know, we're fully distributed. Work from anywhere. Why? We started day one. So we created the the communication channels, the asynchronous meetings. Like it was there from day one. Forget Fortune 500. Take a 5,000 people company with their tools and process and daily meetings and in-office jobs and one day tell them work differently. I, I have a friend who works at Bank Lumi. It's one of the largest banks in Israel. And day one, COVID, they needed to get people to work remotely. They didn't have the technology to enable it. People didn't have computers at home. People didn't have the secure connection to the office. Like, Not to mention, they never handled a meeting through something like a Zoom. And so going through such a significant change is super dramatic. By the way, it's the same thing that I'm saying for people that are not adapting to the flexible workforce. It is happening. Whether you start adapting it now when you have the luxury or you want to have it hit your face one day, it's a decision you can make right now. Remote work was, we saw the trend in 2018, there were over 2,800 companies in the United States without offices. It's before COVID. The trend was obvious, but companies were fighting it tooth and nail. 
until they had no choice. And then it had, you know, during pandemic, everyone was working remotely, but the trend was obvious. And the same thing with freelancers. Companies today without a freelance strategy are like companies back in 2000 without an internet strategy, in 2005 without a mobile strategy. And these companies will have it very difficult to thrive, even survive. I just want to ask you uh, on a personal level, you know, $110 million deal with Fiverr, it's, it's really remarkable. As someone that only, you know, three plus years ago founded this company, what does this kind of deal mean to you? And how has your life changed on a personal level? Hasn't changed much. Still do what I do. Still get up in the morning and try to push Stoke through. You know, I, I keep saying this. For me, when I sold the company, obviously, it's, it's stressful, I don't know, six to eight weeks of negotiations, due diligence and whatnot. When it gets done, you feel like you just want a big client. It's mostly the recognition of value. I've built something that has value. You don't wake up in the morning and feel different. It's like, you know, I've done it. I'm done. Uh, I don't have that feeling. Didn't have it back then. Don't have it now either. It's just the recognition that we built something of value, that someone recognizes the effort. By the way, you got to remember when we sold the company in uh, end of 20, 2021, Selling company for hundred million was wasn't that big of a deal. Everyone's raising on a billion, two billion, three billion. I mean, when I came to the board with the offers, like you're selling for hundred million, it's like everyone's raising on billions. Why are you selling so cheap? I was like, you know, everybody lost complete perspective on what's reality, and we're seeing what's happening in the public market. You know, thirty days after we sold the company, we saw the impact, and so I still think it was a good recognition, still is to what what we're doing, and I think we, we're still only getting started. There's a lot more that we need to do. Uh, stoketalent.com for more on stoke there's an easier way to work with contractors shahar thanks so much for the time where can people follow you on social media you can find me on linkedin uh, pretty active on linkedin not very active on twitter very cool well thanks again for the time really appreciate it adam thank you it was a great chat thanks for having me here take care that's it for today thanks so much for listening e2 is brought to you by scriberbase build your subscription business and thrive more at scriberbase.com. Want to start your own podcast in 2022? Visit e2coursehub.com for more info on our step-by-step guide to bring your show to market. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. 
Patrick Ann.